Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. All right, everyone. Uh, welcome to Studio One at ACME. Thank you all very much for waiting patiently outside. Had a couple of technical difficulties, so we're running a bit behind, um, but that's okay. Um, Live in the studio, for those of you who haven't been here before, is our uh, monthly look at all things TV-related. Uh, and tonight, of course, we're heading back to high school um, and taking a trip through the halls of McKinley High to have a look at Glee. Um, now, Glee first hit our screens in 2009, uh, quickly became a pretty um, big pop culture phenomenon and gained a worldwide legion of fans, including quite a few celebrities that quite literally sung its praises. Um, but it also attracted its fair share of haters as well. Um, and I'm going to come clean here. I was one of them. I was a bit of a hater. Uh, I actually really hated it. Um, they did something really horrific to a Beyonce song, which I've struggled to really let go of. <laughs> and I'm still not at peace with for what they did with that. But I've kind of let it go now. It, it wasn't until I started obsessively watching the first couple of seasons uh, in preparation for this event that I slowly kind of found myself starting to really enjoy it. Um, primarily because of two very important uh, aspects of the show, that being Brittany and Santana. <laughs> but um, apart from the fact that I, I'd started to possibly think that I might have a little bit of gleek in me, um, it was really quite clear watching the show and talking to people that, that it really does polarise people. Um, so we wanted to have an event tonight that wasn't just a celebration but included... Um, a bit of hate in there as well. So, not that I'm looking at Jess particular, but we're gonna we're gonna see a few different views tonight on a few um, different areas of the show. So we've got some hardcore gleeks and some not so gleeky people on the panel. Um, chairing the event tonight uh, will be Tim Hunter. Tim is a writer, an online editor, filmmaker, and a self-described gleek um, who has been embroiled in a love affair with all things TV and film related for years and is channeling a bit of uh, blame tonight with his bow tie there. Um, also on board to champion all things gleeky is Mel Campbell sitting next to Kim, um, a professionally curious pop culturalist uh, who has made a career out of finding out what's new and investigating what these trends reveal about us. Um, Mel has spent her working life as a journalist and an editor and has a sartorial style and stunning wardrobe um, that would make even Emma Pillsbury jealous. Uh, taking on a bit of a, a little bit of a Sue Sylvester-esque Glee Club hating role tonight, um, <laughs> and making her live in the studio debut is Jess McGuire. Uh, Jess co-hosts Triple R Breakfasters program, uh, is the editor of Defamer Australia, um, and that's amongst other various broadcasting and writing gigs. Um, and she also is a regular DJ about town, so she's got a bit of music cred, and I can justify her um, excellent taste in pop music. I've cut a rug to her tunes many a time. When? I know, which I've just revealed then because I, I didn't want you to remember my dance moves in any way, shape, or form. Um, rounding out the panel, we have Clem Basto, who is also a newbie to Live in the Studio. Um, Clem is a Melbourne-based writer and film-slash-TV critic uh, whose work appears in The Age, The Vine, Sunday Life, and The Big Issue, amongst others. 
Um, she's currently recovering from 10 years worth of working in the field of music criticism, um, but was more than willing to delve back into the musically murky depths of Glee tonight. Um, so I'll wrap it up in a minute and just hand over to Tim, but before I do a few housekeeping things, we're gonna, we've got a photographer in here um, who will take some photos about the place. Um, we're also recording for podcast as well, so if you could turn your mobile phones off, that would be great. Um, and if anyone needs to leave to go to the bathroom or anything during the session, if you could just come out this way, uh, when the usher will help you out. Um, it's just a bit hard to get entangled with the curtain and things there. So yeah, I'll wrap it up now and hand over to the panel. Um, Tim's going to start off with a little bit of a previously on Glee inspired intro to the night. So I'll hand over to him um, if you'd just like to join me in welcoming the guest. And here's why, why we love Glee. It all started when Mr Shu took over the Glee Club and renamed it New Directions. He tricked quarterback star Finn into joining and a group of misfits became cool. Even though cheerleading coach Sue Sylvester sabotaged it any way she could, she even got Quinn, uh, Santana and Brittany to join her as spies. Finn and Quinn were going out, but Quinn became pregnant, not with Finn's baby, but Puck's. Mr Shu's wife told him she was pregnant, even though she wasn't, and careers counsellor Emma had the hots for Mr Shu. Both Kurt and Rachel had the hots for Finn, who broke up with Quinn and started dating Rachel for a while. Kurt now loves Blaine and Blaine loves Kurt. Rachel's been fickle with quite a few others but really loves Finn. Santana loves Brittany, who loved Artie for a while and believes that Santa Claus and Leprechauns are real. Mercedes loves her big diva voice and she should. It rocks. Kurt's dad married Finn's mum and now they all live together, which has almost got all a bit awkward there for a while. Rachel's mum Shelby turned up and adopted Quinn's baby, but now Quinn and Puck want their baby back. Puck made a move on Shelby, but then he's made a move on just about everyone. Sue Sylvester had it in for New Directions, but loved her Down Syndrome sister Joan, and now championed special ed funding. Kurt's dad loves his son and is challenging Sue in the congressional camp campaign. Sam the blonde boy with a big mouth and Lauren the big chick only appeared in season two, and Mike and Tina are getting more attention now. Jason St James didn't last long either, and Dave Karofsky looks like he's finally come to terms with his sexuality. Coach Beastie started out as a villain, but she's really a softie. There's lots of singing, lots of guest stars and lots of cheese. And just when you thought that you had Glee all sorted out, there's always a moment that catches you by surprise and you can't help but loving it again. And that's why we love Glee. <laughs> oh, and wasn't that a mouthful? <laughs> so I think I covered just about all the key points over the last two and a half, three seasons. Um, so, yes, yeah, so thank you for joining us and um, I'll hand straight across to, to Mel, who's, you know, sort of going to tell us why she loves Glee. Sure. Um, I might stand up so that I can see these screens. Ooh. Okay, so... Do you need your notes? I have no notes. I've, <laughs> I've been um, obsessively watching Glee, trying to um, uh, immerse myself in its universe. I obviously don't need that much immersing. These are my normal clothes. But um, Glee is fundamentally about competition, it's about the urge of young people to find something that they're really good at and to succeed in that, and it's about other people's attempts to stop them. So we've got basically two kinds of competition. We've got the competition within the Glee Club to be the most awesome, to be the biggest star, and we've got the external forces who always want to bring the Glee Club down, either from the inside or from the outside. Um, so what I think is fascinating is the way that Glee turns this competition into both a, a virtue and a vice, something that needs to be encouraged and something that needs to be stopped. Um, one of the ways in which um, the Glee Club always you know, drives its members forward, gets them thinking about new things, is um, 
through Mr Shoe's weekly sort of song choices, he always has a theme, he makes them go away, prepare a song, come back, and, and sometimes he judges who was the best. Um, and he was in a particular funk trying to get the, the Glee Club to sort of um, pull their act together because they were very um, apathetic, knowing that they were up against a deaf choir and um, who was the other choir in season one? Vocal Adrenaline. Oh, yeah. Um, no, this is in sectionals. Was it the old group and the deaf people? Um, yeah, so basically uh, they're like, well, we don't even have to try. So he's like, we've got to re-inject the idea of competition back into it. So um, they come up with the, the uh, boys versus girls thing, which, of course, um, Will's wife, Terry, complicates by feeding everyone uh, amphetamines. Um, so let's have a look at my first clip, which is the way that they introduced the idea of um, this competition. these people or elements was a champion in their own right, but they used competing with each other to make themselves even better. I don't understand how lightning is in competition with an above-ground swimming pool. <coughs> Just go with it. You guys have become <laughs> complacent. You were great at the Invitational, but you gotta up your game if you want to get through sectionals. Okay, split up. Guys on the left side, girls on the right side. Let's go, come on. All right. Kurt? Here's the deal. Two teams, boys versus girls. One week from today, you will each perform a mashup of your choice. What's a mashup? A mashup is when you take two songs and mash them together to make an even richer explosion of musical expression. Boys will perform on Tuesday, girls the next day. I want you guys to go all out, okay? Costumes, choreography. Whoever wins the competition gets to choose the number that we do for sectionals. Wait, who's going to be the judge? Your gender makes you biased. Ah, there is going to be a celebrity judge. Who? Oh, I'm going to have to show up to find out. We got this in the bag. Totally. I'm going to start storyboarding our choreography tonight. Hey, hope you guys are up for this competition. The girls look pretty pumped. We're planning on smacking them down like the hand of God. <laughs> so, uh, Will also introduces the idea of a mashup in this clip, which is going to be one of the defining um, musical motifs of Glee. They always seem to mash two songs together. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and we're going to hear a few of the uh, mashups that um, they've done over this, the couple of seasons. I think the Adele one is, um, is one of the best ones, and that's the most recent episode that's aired. Um, but the, the idea of interpersonal competition is also one of the, the main narrative drives of Glee. You've got the, the affections of the different people that are being fought over. So as Tim flagged in his uh, wonderful intro, which was so comprehensive, thank you, Tim, um, basically, it's, it's whether or not Rachel will get together with Finn, oh, and Puck and Finn and um, Quinn, and all the, the different personnel sort of have this rotating uh, competition between them, but it's always a, a sort of triangle with, with two people competing for the affections of another person. And then, of course, you've got um, Will's ongoing uh, love for Emma and the way that in season two he pathetically stages the Rocky Horror uh, show in order to, to woo her away from her hot dentist um, fiancé, played by John Stamos. Um, and that's fascinating in the way that it's music here that is being turned 
into the both the vehicle for the competition and the means by which the um, the competition is won or lost. Um, so th- they sing songs to each other, and it's the songs that move people, not so much the um, the activities that happen outside the choir room. That's what I love about Glee, is the way that um, so much of it happens through song, but not necessarily in a Broadway way in which people just break into song. Uh, there's always a sort of formal song within the, the storyline, but... Um, it's through the songs that they explain um, their feelings. And so um, one, wonderful, uh, one wonderful conflict that I'd love to, to um, show a clip of is um, when Rachel and Kurt are vying for a solo to Defying Gravity from the musical Wicked. This actually comes from a real episode in the actor Chris Colfer's life. He had a music teacher tell him that he couldn't sing that song because he was a boy, even though he's basically a countertenor. Um, and he reckons that he can do this high... Is it a high F at the, at the end of the song? So, um, but, of course, Rachel, who has been competing in uh, music and dance championships since she was two months old, um, thinks that she has this in the bag. Um, what I like about this is the intertextuality of the song. That's another thing that I love about Glee is the way that the, the song is never just a song or, you know, a chair is not a chair, as another song in Glee puts it. Um, <laughs> It's, it's about what it means to the people who are singing it and the, the um, sort of hidden meanings within the song. So this idea of defying gravity, within, within the musical Wicked, it's the song that, that finishes Act One, um, where Elphaba decides that she's going to break out of being um, sort of a good witch and she's going to turn to being the, the wicked witch. And so that's, that's what she means by defying gravity. She's literally flying on her broomstick and she's also defying the, the right side of the law. So... Kurt is also defying gravity because he's doing what he's not supposed to be doing. He's um, singing a song that uh, only women are are supposed to be singing. I think Kurt is one of the most fascinating characters in Glee, and obviously we're going to be talking a whole lot more about him um, as as this goes on. But let's just have a look at at the um, the way that they structure it. What they do is they sort of juxtapose the two of them singing it. They don't um, have the the side-by-side performances. They they turn it into almost a duet, but it's, it's a competitive duet, and that's what I like about it. So let's have that clip, please. All right. Welcome to the Glee Club's first official diva off. Let's get this party started. Something has changed within me Something is not the same I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game Too late for second guessing Too late to go back to sleep It's time to trust my instincts Close my eyes and leave It's time to try
oh, that look on Kurt's face is so sad because he knows that he flubbed it. And the look on Mercedes' face as well, when she can see that Kurt's flubbed it, but she wants to, you know, support him anyway. Um, maybe now's as good a time as any to bring up the spectre of auto-tune, which um, mm. sort of stalks the series. And Jess has given me a look which suggests she'll be speaking about that. <laughs> or are you just playing the role? Are you just playing the, the role of the evil... No, I didn't think I was. I was just being myself. Oh, so that's, good, good. <laughs> that's a concern. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> me too. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I also think it's, it's interesting that both those versions of Defying Gravity were released as singles. Um, and, of course, Chris Colfer didn't flub it in the, um, in the version that was released as a single. Um, and also, I, I wish I'd done some research to find out which one actually um, sold the most or did the best as a single. But um, who, who do you reckon did a better job? Rachel? Um, hands up who thought Kurt did a better job. Oh, poor old Kurt. <laughs> I, I, I loved that clip because basically um, you can see how meaningful it is for Kurt and um, also because I love these like, punchy high notes and stuff. There are always certain songs in Glee that send shivers down my spine, which is so corny, but it's true. Um, I almost cried today when I was re-watching um, this episode of um, Mercedes singing uh, Ain't No Way by Aretha Franklin, which is... Um, Rachel rightly says, you know, I'm not going on after that. You brought the house down. Um, the, the tension, the diva off between Mercedes and Rachel is always quite interesting in the show because um, Mercedes, I reckon she's got the best voice of any of the cast, um, but they, they bring her in basically as the, like the one who goes at the end um, of every single song, whereas it's Rachel who tends to get all the solos. Um, what I also like is the way the show incorporates criticism of, of that very same thing that it does all the time, um, the way that Blaine always seems to have all the the solos in The Warblers. In fact, they're just his backing band. Um, and there's actually that scene where basically Rachel and Finn are just doing a duet of No Air while the others are sort of just in the background going like that. And, um, and Quinn says that they're swaying like props, which is a, a pretty accurate description of what they were doing, really. Um, so the adult characters are just as big a part... Ooh, shit. Just as big a part... You can edit that out of the podcast, right? Um, they're just as big a part of the show as the, the kid characters, and that's what I like, is that unlike a lot of other teen shows where the, um, the adults are just the, the parents who appear in a few scenes and go like that, the, um, the adult characters have just as much um, storyline and just as much weight to everything that they do as, as the teenage characters do. Um, another sort of um, battle that I love... Um, is when um, Brian Ryan, play, played by Neil Patrick Harris, um, comes in. What I, I like about Glee is that it always um, brings up the fact that Will was himself a, a teenage show choir guy and he's always having to relive um, you know, the ghosts from his show choir past, like April Rhodes, played by Kristen Chenoweth. Um, and uh, Neil Patrick Harris plays Brian Ryan as this like appalling, sleazy, early 90s um, doofus who was the king of the Glee Club at that time and, and now he's anti-Glee. He thinks it ruined his life. But uh, Will persuades him to have one more go by auditioning for a local production of Les Mis and um, the, the sort of over-the-top antics that they, they get into are fantastic. Um, so let's, let's have a, a look at that clip, please. Hey, buddy. Glad you showed up. Please don't distract me. I'm trying out for the role of Jean Valjean. So am I. <laughs> really? So let me get right to the point. What song do you plan on singing? I was going to sing The Impossible Dream. Wow, really? Interesting. So am I. 
But then I decided on Aerosmith's Dream On. Yeah, me too. That's what I'm gonna sing. Are you kidding me? Wait, is there a problem out here? Yeah, there's a problem. This guy just stole my song. Uh, I don't know this man. His caretaker just stepped away, overheard a mention of sex offenders. Oh, you're gonna so need a caretaker in a second, buddy. I run a dry cleaner. I can only keep it closed for 30 minutes at a time. Thank you. Sing it as a duet. came out best in that one. Who votes for Will? And who votes for Brian? I personally, I thought Brian did, I mean, come on, you can't go past that high, like, squeaking that he was doing <laughs> at, at the end. But she used to have to sing while doing his gums the whole time. I just love the way, they were doing as well that, like, like um, that soft rock squatting like you're going to poo on the stage sort of, of thing. You see that in Eurovision all the time, but <laughs> that's something else. Um, so I like that. I haven't mentioned really Sue Sylvester, who doesn't really get that much um, to sing herself, um, although when she does get a song, I always love it. Um, we're going to hear more about her as well. I feel like I'm the person who's, like, setting things up for other people to spike tonight. But anyway... Um, so the idea of competition, of course, culminates in the fact that this is a competitive show choir and they have to, first of all, get through sectionals, then they have to get through
through regionals, and then if they win that, they have to get to nationals. Now, I was having a bit of a discussion with, um, with Tim and Clem earlier about, like, how does that even work? Is that how the actual show choir system works? Because America's a pretty big country. How come they're only ever up against two random choirs in, in their entire performance? And, and how come they get, like, a really long set, but they're opponent only gets like half a song. But of course, <laughs> Glee is the sort of show where it doesn't really pay to ask those kinds of questions. Um, also questions like, why is Brad the accompanist everywhere? Um, although I do like that Rachel says at one point, that's Brad. He's just always there. And um, so basically, they're, they're always building up to these scenes. And so that's where the, the antagonism clashes. Um, so I thought it was going to be um, a good exercise to show how they react at the end of the first season um, when they, they get their results at, um, at sectionals. And basically, they've been led to believe that if they lose this competition, it's the end of Glee Club. Like, Mr Shu basically says that every time they have a meeting, which, of course, they also seem to have meetings every single day and, and rarely go to class. But anyway, we'll, we'll let that one slide as well. It's one of those things about Glee. Um, so they, they've got a lot riding on this, and so it's, it's a moment that's filled with, with real pathos. So let's just watch this clip. And now, your 2010 Midwest Regional Show Choir Champions. So sad times for New Directions. Um, of course, ever since Lawrence Lung had his show um, where he basically pointed out that New Directions basically sounds like nude erections, I, I've never, ever been able to take the name of the group seriously. Um, so they, they think that's it. It's, it's all over. And um, whereas it's just... Um, it's actually a wonderful moment in many ways because uh, it comes to light later that um, Sue Sylvester, their arch nemesis, was the only one who um, supported them because she herself felt like an outcast in the judging room where they were making fun of her and in some way she sort of recognised that what she was doing was, was bullying the other kids. Um, and then, of course, she gets just one more year because she tells them that it's because she wants, you know, to, to have fun toying with them for another year. But I think that's... Seriously, um, Sue is a good person. Um, and all through the series, you get lots of hints that um, all the things that turned Sue into the, 
the mean um, bully that she is. Um, I, I love that she's um, she's so kind to her sister as well. That's it's a nice foil to the bad Sue that we always seem to get. Um, so in season two, when they they again compete at regionals, it doesn't have anywhere near the emotional weight of the first time they were there. It's pretty much like they don't even bother announcing the other teams. They just get straight to it. Yay, New Directions won. But then in New York City, they come to realise that it's a much bigger Glee universe than, than the ones they're in, and they don't even place in the top ten. Um, so that's it's sad, but I think that first season where they think that it's all over and it's life or death is, um, is one of the, the great moments. And, of course, they redeem it by singing to Sir with love to Mr Shu, which is... Um, it's never shied away from corniness, um, is another thing I love about Glee. <laughs> all right, well, that's just me done. Um, let's get on with the show. Okay. Um, thank you, Mel. Yeah, because it's 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 interesting. I'll, I'll probably touch on this a little bit later, but the, I think the thing, one of the things about you know sort of the fact that, that New Directions always loses or, or never actually wins is, is kind of is is, is Glee and the, and the creators of Glee turning that expectation on its head because you get this whole season you know build up and it's you know you, you think yeah yeah they're going to win and it's going to be you know sort of that you know you've seen it in in films and in TV so many times mm-hmm. and so to have that rug you know taken out from under your feet and just to go oh it, it really um, you know, sort of makes you think twice, and, and it, I actually think it, it gives Glee, you know, more credibility because it doesn't, you know, sort of it That's doesn't right. rely on those or t- turns those whole, you know, sort of conventions on their head, and 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 you know, sort of and characters like that. But I'll I'll talk about that a bit later. Um, but does anyone else have any comments, suggestions, questions? Anyone in the crowd want to ask? I'm saving mine as ammo. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in which case, and maybe we'll um, we'll head straight into um, to Jess, mm. who's um, going to be talking about hating in in Glee, not hating Glee, but hating in Glee. Is that no, no hating Glee? Okay, <laughs> no hating. No. Don't use hate, too many words. Hating Glee. <laughs> no. Well, first of all, I think I should start by saying that Glee was a show that I really wanted to like. On paper, when I heard about it, it was certainly I was on board. I mean, I love pop music. I'm a huge defender of pop music. I mean, I work at Triple R, which is sort of an alternative radio station, but Clem and I actually started our first radio show together and I would say that we got in trouble for, mm. <laughs> for some of the songs that we would play. We, we have a really healthy appreciation for all genres of music. So the idea of a, you know, a quirky, quippy pop culture show that celebrated music and, and did covers and stuff like that, that's exactly what I love. Um, I hadn't got a chance to watch it when it first started and uh, a friend of mine who was a TV reviewer for The Green Guide had a whole heap of it and she we went away on a holiday and she said, you're going to love it, you're going to love it, you have to sit down and watch it. And it's kind of, it was kind of like, I guess, being told that you're going to meet someone and that they were really cute and perfect for you and, and then you meet them and you go, yeah, no, it's not actually. <laughs> for some reason, it, it, it just didn't click with me and I, I did honestly sit down and watch maybe like the first six or seven episodes and I think that one of the things that really, really jarred for me was... The use of auto-tune, I know that that's, that's a, a really common problem. And I don't know why I find it really hard to suspend my disbelief when I can watch something like Battlestar Galactica and believe that some humans are made, actually robots <laughs> or watch Buffy and go, of course, that's quite reasonable, the Vampire King is back. You know, I, <laughs> I, I accept all of these things completely, but for some reason the idea that these kids can sing down a hallway with no instruments around them and yet I can hear music, I go, bullshit. You know, and it's really odd, but... 
I, I found it quite frustrating as well. I, also, I, I felt like I, I was expected to really love these people and I, I just didn't. I just didn't and I really tried. So we're going to have a clip because I only actually just realised that they did this song and this is one of my favourite songs. I've been listening to it for the past two weeks non-stop and then just in researching this I discovered that they covered Open Your Heart by Madonna and it's... it's, a, it's a, I think we should just watch the clip because it's, <laughs> it's auto-tuned and it just kills me. But we'll just have a look at it first. Let's rehearse then. kind of carry on, go, go unchided, I promise you. Um, looking at the comments, because I, I was just sort of checking out the Gleeks, of which you are all part of it, and I don't want to mock you, but um, one of the comments on YouTube, talk about sexual tension, lol, love it. Now, I would accept that from someone that had never had sex and didn't know what sexual tension was, but that was a comment by Crazy Chicka 1972 who was a 39-year-old woman who should probably know better. Um, now... In thinking about Glee, I, I, I had a rethink, and I had a rethink that was caused by uh, someone that I admire very much. It was, it was a very disturbing email that I got from you in the front row, uh, who said, did you know that Stevie Nicks loves Glee? And I believe the quote was, a day without Glee is like a day without sunshine. It was very concerning to me. I watched the videos in question, and I am a little bit worried about Stevie Nicks. If we can... Uh, if we can just have a look at Stevie talking to the, the cast, I think uh, she's not in a good way. <laughs> you guys, I just want you to know that this is my one little thing I'll say. When people ask me, what makes you happy, Stevie? I say, to be on my pink couch in my 1938 library with a cup of chai tea, hot water bottle, and glee. Oh. 
We all know that Stevie Nicks had a drug habit. <laughs> I would suggest that Stevie has perhaps replaced, replaced cocaine with Glee. And I don't think it's working for her. In another interview, I, I actually feel like she's off chops on Glee, if we could have a clip of that. Um, that I feel like these kids are all my kids. They're my children. They're my little song children, each one of them. Each one of them or all of them. You know. <laughs> They are like my little song children, each one of them or all of them. That means the same thing, Stevie. You don't know where you are. <laughs> I say that with great affection, but um, I, I'm, I'm quite actually happy to say that last week I got to chat to Stevie Nicks about Glee in a hotel room in Sydney. I'm not lying to you. And, uh, and I asked her what, you know, whether she thought that I should give it a go. And she said that I have to start with show number one, otherwise it's, uh, it's like reading the third Twilight book. <laughs> also on my list of things to do. Um, and she, she recommended at the end, she said, uh, if I watch it, I'll be up dancing. It will give me energy. Like cocaine. <laughs> it will make you feel like you're back in high school and it will just make you laugh. So I wanted to sort of, again, really, I really wanted to like Glee. So I, I remember I'd stopped watching it on the television and then I read about a storyline that had like a, you know, a, a bigger girl that was the, the love interest of, of the school heartthrob Puck. And I thought, well, all right, maybe, maybe that will be interesting. I will go to YouTube and, and watch a clip from that show. And then this happened. This is what I watched. Are you going to take me home tonight?
feeling that blonde kid is played by an actual robot because I'm pretty sure that every scene that he's in is the most auto-tuned thing I've ever heard. So I watched that, I closed it, I thought this is, like, you know, not to be awful, but it was such an improbable and almost condescending storyline I found. And same, uh, I think, with the the coach, is it Coach Beast? Coach Beast, yeah. Coach Beast. I know things, that's nice. Um, Coach Beast, you know, Will Schuster giving her her first kiss. I mean, the whole thing just seemed really condescending for something that was meant to be empowering about, uh, you know, people that are maybe a little bit different, a little bit, uh, you know, not in the mainstream. It just was really patronising. So I was off Glee. I was done with Glee. And this is what you've expected me to be, the Sue Sylvester. But I thought, I can't come to this and, and not have actually watched much of the show. You know, just watch the bits that I hated. So I've had to sit down and, and watch quite a few episodes. The surprising thing is that there are aspects of Glee that I think are really good. There are. And um, the, the, the first thing, I actually just checked notes that I wrote when I first started watching Glee um, again... And the one thing that I wrote is Glee, Kurt's relationship with his father is exceptional. And there's a particular conversation, the sex ed talk that Kurt's father has with him that was such a phenomenal piece of of acting, I thought, and script writing. And it showed me what that show could be because I think that my frustrations with it were, particularly I think maybe it's the first and second season where it seemed that they were creating theme weeks for, for ratings, for iTunes sales, for all these things that were really just jamming songs in. You've got a show that's about a show choir. Like, you don't need an excuse to have people singing randomly. You've got a perfectly good reason to have them doing stuff on stage that's plausible. Um, And you can still be developing your characters and actually having them interact with each other in a way that's believable, that's not just quip, 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 quip song, you know, Lady Gaga song. Um, Watching this scene was the thing that started changing my mind because, and I can absolutely see why Chris Colfer won himself an Emmy for his performance in this show because not only with the clip that Mel showed earlier do you see that he's obviously a, a phenomenal singer but this scene is really great and really really quite touching if we can have a look at it. <laughs> Those are some pamphlets that I picked up from the free clinic. I thought it might help the process along because it is time you and I had the talk. Oh, Yes, it is. You told me to educate myself. Hey, you think this is easy for me? Okay, believe me. I want to do this even less than you do. This is going to suck for both of us. But we're going to get through it together, and we will both be better men because of it. First, most of the um, mechanics of what you're going to be doing is covered in the pamphlets. Okay, so I want you to read them, and then I want you to come talk to me about it. Deal? Okay. All right, now. Hey, sit down. We're just getting started. All right. Now, for most guys, sex is just, you know, it's this thing we always want to do. You know, it's fun. It feels great. But we're not really thinking too much about, you know, how it makes us feel on the inside or, you know, how the other person feels about it. Women are different? Only because they get that it's about something more than just the physical. You know, when, you, when you're intimate with somebody in that way, you're exposing yourself. You know, you're, you're never going to be more vulnerable. And that scares the hell out of a lot of guys. Believe me, I can't tell you how many buddies I've got who have gotten in way too deep with a girl who said she was cool with just hooking up. But that's not going to happen to me, Dad. No, it's going to be worse, okay? Because it's two guys. With two guys, you got two people who think that sex is just sex. It's gonna be easier to come by, and once you start doing this stuff, you're not gonna wanna stop. You just, you gotta know that it means something. You know, it's doing something.
to you, to your heart, to your self-esteem, even though it feels like just having fun. So you're saying I shouldn't have sex? I think on your 30th birthday, it is a great gift to yourself. (laughs) Kurt, when you're ready, I want you to be able to do everything. But when you're ready, I want you to use it as a way to connect to another person. Don't throw yourself around like you don't matter. Because you matter, Kurt. Is that it? That's it for now. Can I make you some toast? I think I'll take it up to my room to eat while I look over my new pamphlets. (laughs) Thank you, Dad. You're welcome. That's a fairly amazing scene, and and I'm well aware of the fact that, I mean, this show is a phenomenon all over over the state, so it's not just in the big cities, but there's going to be a lot of kids that are living in towns where maybe being gay isn't okay. Uh, Certainly they don't feel like it's it's a place where they can be themselves. That are watching this show and seeing a relationship with a parent like that, that it's really going to mean something to them. And I know that there's probably a bit of an argument out there that that I've certainly read that people are saying that, the success, I guess, of, of fleshing out the gay characters and really putting people like that... Um, people like that. Really putting those kinds of characters on the, on the screen... <laughs> putting those kind of characters on the screen um, is very new to have them not as, I guess, a quirky side character, the, the sidekick, you know, that, that's there to make a quip and go away. I mean, if anything, I think Glee's a show where the gay and bisexual kids are probably the main characters, are the, are the best-written characters. It's the others that are rapidly becoming, I think, as the series go on, probably more caricatures of themselves, um, to the detriment of having a fully-fleshed-out show, probably. But um, the, I think I'm, I'm going to go back to that point, but I'm just going to quickly squeeze in a scene that, that when I watched it the other day, um, and this is Santana, and Santana is certainly one of the characters as well, that I know everyone loves Santana, I know that you love Santana now. I also know that you dance to my DJing. Lots of things are emerging tonight. Did you play Santana? When you I don't have any glee on my iPod. But maybe after this. Um, <laughs> Santana is, an, is actually, a, I, I found quite an interesting character. Certainly the way that she's developed, the way that I, I think from my understanding, um, fans and fan feedback has certainly helped with developing her character as well. And she's an absolute star. You can't actually... I can't understand why she wasn't the star from the beginning because if you watch her performing America in the West Side Story episode, I'm sure it has a proper name that you guys know, um, (laughs) that is amazing. And for me, this is a really prime example of... My problem with auto-tune goes the second you start getting the people that really can sing. So you Chris Colfers, you Leah Michelle's, and certainly... uh, What's Santana's real name? Naya Rivera. Naya Rivera. How do I not know that? Um, Naya Rivera. Phenomenal. Because I don't hate Glee anymore. Um, let's have a look at them performing America because this is a prime example of a context, great singers, and, and it absolutely working um, on the show. I think about how we came to America. Like children, believing, trusting. Ah, trusting with our hearts open. With our arms open. You came with your mouth open. <laughs> I work on this kid's diction. Without a doubt, the best musical McKinley has ever done. Well, we'll see. It's a risky artistic choice weaving the Jets into America, but already insisted. I just hope that people go with it, you know? 
most upsetting is that I voluntarily watched that episode in my own time <laughs> and it was really hard for me to accept. Um, back to the point before, um, just before we get to our fin- my final clip that I'm going to choose to do, um, going back to, the, I guess, the representation of the gay characters, th- there's another show that I think is quite similar in the sense that I feel like those characters are more fleshed out than the others and the show Skins, the second series of Skins, um, and if you have watched that, I... It was a really hype show. I, I, I got why people liked it. I didn't feel it in, in my heart, which is, you know, which is what sweeps you up in a show. But if you watch just the bits with the, the storyline of, of uh, I think it's, I can't remember, Emily, one of the twins, um, you know, coming out, finding a girlfriend, and, and the storyline of that is perfectly acted and really well written. And it's, it's like, it was almost like a show within a show. And it, it's funny, I don't know whether they just had you know, really great writers that were able to identify with that. I, I feel like the same thing is sort of happening with Glee. Far and away, the most interesting and and best written storyline is the one between Brittany and Santana, and it's certainly the one that seems to be gripping the world, from what I can gather. Um, watching this clip of the Adele mashup that has just happened, and I'm sure you've, you're all Gleek, so you've probably all watched it several times, but I can't think that it's bad to watch it on a big screen with nice speakers. Um, there is so not only I, I've not been sold on the mashing up. I, I think it's a bit of a novelty in in a lot of the shows. And certainly the idea of mashing up these two Adele songs would have put shivers of, you know, repulsion down my spine. But in actually watching it, it's, it's perfectly done. It sounds absolutely incredible. And there's a really subtle bit where, uh, where Naya Rivera does this tiny little side look, a little glance, when she should be saying something and she kind of doesn't. That is incredible. And it's, I think we should just watch it and I'm happy to finish on this note. And I guess by saying that I, I still have some frustrations with Glee. I don't think I'm the Sue Sylvester that you wanted because, unfortunately, by having to sit down and watch so many episodes, I started to kind of get it a lot more and I'm certainly a lot more invested in it by Series 3 and uh, I don't know who I am anymore. (laughs) We can just watch this and I'll quietly reflect on my life and where it's going.
Um, yeah, it's a, it's, that is a powerful, um, a powerful track. And I remember when I sort of first saw that, I think it was on, they put it on YouTube, you know, the week before the episode actually aired. And it was just like, it was, it was one of those chills down the spine moments, but not of revulsion. It was just like, wow, when they get it good, when they get it right, they get, get it really right. people that can right. sing doing really great songs in a way that it sounded like a real band was playing there, not that it had a synthesizer, you mm. know, it, it was fantastic and really well done. Yeah, and I think, you know, sort of... Um, that, I think, you know, for me, epitomises what makes Glee, you know, such a great show because, I mean, it was, it was beautifully sung, it was beautifully choreographed, the, um, the camera work and the, um, the, just the, um, the direction of it was just amazing and the subtext of, you know, Santana's pain, you know, knowing, you know, realising that, you know, that Brittany's not going to love her back. You know, I think it just comes after... That's not the subtext, is it? <laughs> well, That's what Stevie Nicks told me. Drop name. That's <laughs> what she told me. She goes, she goes, uh, she goes well, you know, Santana's basically gay and Britney's basically not. And I was like, you take that back. <laughs> <laughs> but it also, I think that comes, back, uh, you know, straight off the, um, the, the scene where Santana gets called into Sue Sylvester's office and her, her lesbianism has been used as a smear campaign on the, on the Congress campaign. That's one of the other campaigners is sort of, you know... Smear campaign against Sue Sylvester, um, so it's got you know that added poignancy, and it is you know and it is a, a great scene, and I think you know even the way it was edited, the way you know sort of you, you know you saw Santana, and then Brittany was in the background, kind of avoiding her gaze, and you know it just it just spoke volumes, and so that's one of the reasons why I love Glee, and and now it's you know my turn to talk about why I love Glee. <laughs> um, and I think one of, one of the things that I really, you know, embraced and loved about Glee to start with is that it's cheeky and it's cheesy, it's accessible, it's ironic, it's self-aware, it's frivolous, but it's grounded. And for me, I suppose, it's also incredibly recognisable because, you know, I was, at, the, at high school, I was that kid who hung out in the library to avoid the bullies. I was the one who got involved in school musicals and My Fair Lady and Nanny Get Your Gun and Hello Dolly and, you know, and I was the one who was, try, who was skipping phys ed classes and trying to avoid the sports days because that's, you know, it didn't interest me. So I wasn't quite Kurt Hummel. I don't think I, I even knew I was gay back then, but I was close to being Kurt. And so, you know, for me, you know, I suppose, you know, the, the character that I identify mostly with is Kurt. 
Um, but I think, you know, sort of given that, and, and you know, sort of you were talking about uh, a bit about this before as well, Jess, is that, it, you, know, it, it, you know, Glee tackles archetypal characters and turns them on their head. And when I say archetypal, I'm not talking stereotypes. You know, they're, they're kind of the archetypes, you know, like the, the quarterback jocks and the cheerleading team, you know, who are the cool kids. You know, sort of through to the misfit characters such as the gay kid, the kid in the wheelchair, the ethnic minorities. Um, and I think what Glee does is, is, is puts them all in and sort of, you know, which could almost be, you know, if you're looking at it cynically, sort of go, oh, yeah, well, we better tick that box, you know, tick the disability box, tick the gay character box, tick this, you know, and all that sort of thing. But I think what it then does is is, is, is aware of that and sort of says, OK, we, we know this is what we're doing, so we'll just turn it all on its head. And so suddenly Finn and Quinn, you know, sort of the cool kids are now the losers. And, and you know, and, and as, you know, sort of you said before as well, Kurt and, and even, you know, Santana are some of the, the better written characters and, and they're the ones who have got their shit together. You know, whereas a lot of the other characters, you know, like Rachel and, and Finn, are still kind of struggling to find out who they are. Um, so, it, it you know, it, it, it plays with all of those things, and and um, and none of these characters is actually two dimensional. I mean, even the series leads, such as you know, Mr. Shu and Rachel and Finn and Quinn and Mercedes and Kurt, um, they all have their moments when they're unlikable. You know, and. And where you just sort of go, oh, no, don't do that. I mean, look, you know, at the end of season two, you know, Mr. Shu was ready to, to run off and, you know, join, you know, sort of, you know, leave the school, leave the Glee Club um, to pursue a Broadway career and it didn't, you know, it didn't come through. Rachel, you know, sort of she's always, she, you know, she, she treads that fine line between likeable and detestable, you know, because, you know, she's so, she's so selfish and so self-centred and such a diva, but at the same time she's incredibly vulnerable and, you know, sort of and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and Quinn, some, oh no, Finn sometimes can be just a blonk and, you know, just a, a, a brainless blonk, but other times, you know, he, he can be really courageous and he can really sort of stand up for, you know, for himself and for others and he shows, you know, a backbone that you don't necessarily always see otherwise. And even actually in that episode, that the last episode, where, you know, Santana's really digging into him and, to, you know, teasing him about his weight and stuff like that. And he sort of, you know, tells um, Rory, the, the new Irish kid, that, you know, well, no, we've just got to, you know, play, you know, her game, you know, sort of with this, you know, fight fire with fire. It doesn't work. But then he just turns around and, you know, just sort of says, well, you know, Santana, when are you going to admit it that, you know, that you love Brittany and Brittany isn't going to love you back? And, and, and that goes straight, you know, he, he hits it, you know, hits the nail on asshole. the head. Yeah, well... But it was still a powerful moment because, you know, because Santana was being all, you know, sort of sassy and, and sort of thought she had Finn in the palm of her hand. And then, you know, and yeah, it's an asshole thing to do, but I suppose in the other way, it sort of, it shows that he does have that kind of insight. He knows what's going on. And so he's not, you know, he's, he's, he's got more, you know, going on upstairs and, than, you know, the normal. Um, but yeah, it was just, it, it's an interesting scene because it is one of those like, oh gosh, that was a bit uncomfortable, but it was actually really well written. Um, so, you know, and, and then we get, you know, characters like Puck and Santana and Brittany and Mike, you know, sort of increasingly, you know, this season. Um, yeah, the Asian, you know. <laughs> and, and Tina, they're being fleshed out and developed a bit more. And, you know, I mean, in, in episodes like um, a couple of weeks ago, there was the one where Mike's dad sort of, you know, you know, the Asian F episode, and he said, you know, you're not going to, you know, you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be a lawyer and you're not going to, you know, you're going to give up this Glee Club stuff. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it's, you know, so I think that, you know, that's one of the things that I really like about, about the show is that it, um, it does, you know, 
throw up all those kind of stereotypes and those archetypes and play around with them and, and toss them around and stuff like that. It also throws characters into unlikely situations, you know, sort of often for comic effect and, and often to challenge their roles and our perceptions of their roles and, and, and the way it all fits in together. Um, and I thought what I'd do is, is play a clip from... Um, from an episode where Kurt joins the football team, you know, sort of early in season one to impress his dad. Um, and I, yeah, there's, there's, there's so much, you know, sort of role reversal and stuff going on in here. It's actually quite a fun, um, fun scene to watch. So if we can run that first clip. Thanks, Jay. Yes, and then later on in that scene we get, um, you know, sort of um, Kurt actually wins, you know, wins the match, I think, with, you know, sort of, again, with that single ladies bit as well. But I, I, it's just, I mean, I saw a lot of you laughing because it is, it, it's one of those things that Glee does really, you know, sort of really well. It takes something in popular culture like, you know, Beyonce's, you know, put a ring on it, single ladies, uh, where everyone was kind of, you know, learning the dance routine, doing their own little YouTube clips and stuff like that, and to get a whole team of, of you know, really masculine, butch, quarterback players to then, you know, or, you know, gridiron players to then do this whole dance. It just, it, it flipped, flipped the whole thing on its head and the fact that Kurt's in there trying to impress his dad and his dad knows that he's gay, but, you know, it, there's just so much going on. And even, you know, in that clip you saw as well, you know, the subjects between, you know, or, you know the, the hug between Emma and Mr. Shu and you know that, you know, sort of that there's stuff happening there, but it's still early days yet. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of the things, the, um, one of the great things that I, I think Glee does really well. Um, and speaking of which, you know, I think one of the other things, you know, and we've talked about it a bit, you know, already, is one of the things that it does greatly is um, is treats Kurt, you know, sort of in any sexuality in the show in a really good way because, you know, I think, you know, as as Jess was saying as well, that you know there are kids out, you know, sort of, you know, 
in, in Australia and America everywhere who are you know in their country towns who are you know sort of struggling with their sexuality and not quite you know sort of um, ready to come out or you know sort of you know a bit uncomfortable about it um, you know and they're, they're watching this you know and and it's it's resonating with people because and, it, and it's good because Kurt isn't just the, the token gay boy who's destined to be one of the one with the flamboyant wardrobe and the bitchy one-liners, although he does those really well. But, you know, he does have this whole developed storyline and um, we see him coming out to his dad with surprising results. We see him being bullied by Dave Karofsky, who's dealing with his own sexuality issues. We see him fall in love with Blaine. We see, you know, sort of the... Um, the sex talk, you know, with his dad. Um, we see his first kiss with Blaine, his first sexual experience. And I think, you know, to the show's credit, that, you know, it, it treats all of this, you know, with a great deal of respect and humour, but also reality. And it demonstrates that, that Kurt's sexual awakening is no different to, to Rachel's or to any of the other characters. Um, and that, you know, that being gay doesn't, you know, make him a freak or doesn't make him different. You know, it's actually quite normal for Kurt or, you know, it's just who Kurt is. And and it doesn't, you know, put him up on a pedestal, you know, sort of like shows have done in, in you know, God knows in, in years past, like, you know, um, oh, what Melrose Place, you know, when Matt was a single token gay character who, you know, got a blurred kiss and that was about it. You know, now we're actually getting this kind of stuff. Um, in, in, you know, on television, on primetime television on Channel 10. On network television. Yeah, and it, on network television, you know, at 7.30 at night, you know, sort of... And no-one's batting an eyelid. You know, we're not getting, you know, sort of, you know, religious, you know, sort of conservatives or, you know, politician, politicians going up and saying, this is a disgrace, you know, sort of boys kissing boys, and, you know, in primetime television on a network television channel, it's just not on and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's, you know, the, the episode a couple of weeks ago where, you know, sort of... Kurt and, and Blaine, you know, sort of do settle down to have sex. We don't obviously see the sex because they've got a, you know, it's still PG time. Um, but but at the same time, you know, that's cut in between Rachel and Finn having their first sexual experience as well. And they're treated equally the same. And I think that that's, um, that's really, you know, that, that really normalises it for a lot of people. And I think that, you know, had I, you know, had, I, had Glee been screening on television, you know, when I was 15, 16, 17... Um, I probably would have, you know, dealt with my sexuality a lot earlier, and I think, you know, sort of that it, it's, um, it's, it's a real. It's not, no, it's not brave. I think it's, it's just, it's, it's real, and and it deals with it, and it, it does it really well, and it doesn't. It, it, sorry, it's not scared about getting serious where necessary. And I thought that I, I actually, you know, show this, this scene, this incredibly powerful scene. Um, where, where Kurt's dad, Bert, you know, rips through Finn for some, some comments that he makes. Um, and and, the, and this, actually, this scene, I, you sort of did a bit of research on the, on the internet and the number of blogs that actually put this scene up and sort of said, oh, I don't usually watch Glee, but I watched this and, wow, what a great, powerful scene, how well written and, what, you know, how it says so much more than, you know, sort of, you know, tolerance campaigns or, you know, you know sort of all sorts of other anti, you know, anti-homophobia campaigns, you know, sort of organised... Um, this scene actually does more for you know for the cause of you know anti-homophobia than anything else. So um, before I get any more you know sort of tongue-tied, we'll just show this screen, which actually is quite you know an affirming and and a moving scene as well. So I had to skip school to finish it, but I think you're really going to like it. Considered a peace offering after all the yelling that we were doing. I use Marlena Dietrich and Gary Cooper in Morocco as my inspiration. It's a perfect blend of the masculine and the feminine, and the muted and the theatrical. Are you freaking insane? I can't live here, I'm a dude. What the hell is that supposed to be? It's a privacy partition. It's the only one I could find at such short notice. 
Why are you getting angry about everything? I worked hard on this. That's not a privacy partition. Why is it so hard for you to understand? I don't want to get dressed in front of you. You know that I, I put my underwear on in the shower before I come out when you're around? I just, I don't want to have to worry about that kind of stuff in my own room, man. And what stuff are you referring to? You know. You know what I'm talking about. Don't play dumb. Why can't you just accept that I'm not like you? I have accepted that. No, you haven't. You think I don't see the way you stare at me? How flirty you get? You think I don't know why you got so excited that we were going to be moving in together? It's just a room, Finn! We can redecorate it if you want to! Okay. Good. Well, then the first thing that needs to go is that faggy lamp. And then we need to get rid of this faggy couch guy. What did you just call him? Oh, no, no, I, I didn't call him anything. I was talking to the blanket. You use that word. You're talking about him. Relax, Dad. I didn't take it that way. Yeah, that's because you're 16 and you still assume the best in people. You live a few years. You start seeing the hate in people's hearts. Even the best people. You use the N-word? Of course not. Yeah, how about retard? You call that nice girl in Cheerios with Kirk, you call her a retard? No, she's my friend. She's got Down syndrome. I never call it. That's cool. But you think it's okay to come into my house and say faggy? But that's not what I meant. I know what you meant. What, you think I didn't use that word when I was your age? You know, some, some kid gets clocked in practice. We tell him, stop being such a fag. Shake it off. We meant it exactly the way you meant it. That being gay is wrong. That's some kind of punishable offense. I really thought you were different, Finn. You know, I thought that being in Glee Club and being raised by your mom meant that you were some, you know, new generation of dude who saw things differently, who just kind of, you know, came into the world knowing what it's taken me years of struggling to figure out. I guess I was wrong. I'm sorry, Finn, but you can't, you can't stay here. Dad. I love your mom. And maybe this is going to cost me her. But my family comes first. I can't have that kind of poison around. This is our home, Kurt. He is my son. Out in the world, you do what you want. Not under my roof. This looks great. <laughs> Has that man been nominated for an Emmy? Uh, Quite should seriously, because yeah. I've not seen that scene before, and I just welled up with tears. That's mm. that's incredible. Yeah, it, it's a, it's an amazingly well written scene, and I mean, even the fact you know, sort of you know, sort of after he's had this big you know amazing rant that it just makes you sit back. I remember watching it at home, um, you know, and we and we both sort of sat back and went, "Wow, you know, this is just you know full on." And then you know, to have him you just sort of go, "This room looks great," you know, and it just and and kind of. You know the, the writers are aware that you know of what they're doing, of the, you know sort of the, the impact and, the, and the, the seriousness of you know this scene, and then just to sort of kind of just to lighten it, just to make sure that it's not all heavy and you know sort of and um, and you know sort of deep and meaningful. They just throw that little line in, which doesn't, which I think adds to its you know its its 
its its meaning and its intensity, and just makes it you know uh, yeah it's just an amazingly well written show. Um, but of course you know it's we're, we're talking Glee, so it's not just scenes like that that are you know obviously important, but it's you know it's it's the music you know and I love the music. I love the surprising, hilarious, and, and often amazing arrangements that we get that that you know that they present on the show. It's a mix of Broadway, naturally, of course, you know, daggy and almost forgotten '80s tunes, things like you know obviously the iconic "Don't Stop Believing," but you know sort of almost forgotten songs like "Safety Dance" and you know "An Uptown Girl" and and you know Van Halen's "Jump." And, Basically, my iTunes. Well. <laughs> yeah, maybe Uptown Girl has forgotten your. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not on my iPod. <laughs> well, no, it's not on my iPod either. But oh god. But um, you know, so we've got all the we've got the icons, you know, sort of like Madonna and Britney and and Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac. Um, you know, we've got the current chart toppers like Lady Gaga and Katy Perry and Adele. Um, you know, and it's it's all this you know it's this great kind of mix. I mean, it's. You know, you can almost say that it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, you know, they've sourced the whole soundtrack from a gay radio station from Joy, but, um, <laughs> you know, there's some, there's some truth to that as well. But, um, but there are so many, you know, great examples of, of songs that, you know, sort of, that they've done, and we've seen quite a few of them already tonight, you know, sort of, and even, you know, sort of the, um, that, that Madonna mashup, you know, the Open Your Heart and, and Borderline. <laughs> You know, it's. So yeah. what did, is that any example of good? <laughs> well, well, I thought differing opinions. No, well, the, the the mashing up of it is it was actually quite clever the way they the, the song kind of blended the together. Computer the, did really well. <laughs> someone had to push the buttons, but um, but but yeah, I mean, you know, sort of, they don't always get it right, but um, but a lot of the time they do. Um, and you know, while there are so many examples that we could actually go, I'm going to play this one just because it made me smile, and also because it shows. You know, I mean, we heard before that it, it, it attracts quite a lot of guest stars as well, and this one does involve a guest star. Um, but it shows that those guest stars can laugh at themselves and their own legacy as well. So I'm not going to say any more than than that. But we'll just sort of play it, and um, and you can sort of probably have a, hopefully have a chuckle with it as well. Take a look at this.
Can I say, that's the only Glee song I've ever bought on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the share, believe aspect of yeah. Jay Lynch's voice. Oh, I did. Oh, and Jay has had a lot of work done. Her boobs. They're massive, aren't they? Her boobs. Can we play the boobs? Her um, and the, one of the other things that, you know, watching that again, you, you realise, I mean, they were even, even you know, with the, 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 the guys running around and their, you know, their red leotards and stuff like that, is pushing boundaries, again, for primetime television with, you know, the, um, I suppose, turning that whole objectification of sexual, you know, objects, you know, back onto men and stuff like that. There's, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff going on there, um, which I think is, is great. And, of course, it, it involved Jane Lynch and um, as Sue Sylvester. And if, you know, to be honest, if, you know, if Sue Sylvester wasn't in the show, I don't think there would be a show. Um, and I know that there are a lot of, you know, sort of, especially the US critics who sort of said, you know, Jane Lynch is the, is the best thing in the show. She makes the show. And I think, you know, she does because as well as giving the Glee Club its necessary nemesis, um, she also manages to cut through the, the self-indulgent cheese that we've often spoken about. Or at least she brings her own very sharp and crumbly cheese to the table and brings it right down to earth because, yeah, she's evil. She's got a sharp tongue, but she's hilarious. And her ruthlessness knows no bounds. Knows no bound. But, you know, at the core of it, she is a real person. I think, you know, you were saying before that she's actually, a, you know, she's not evil. She's a good person. And I think it's a, a credit to Jane Lynch that she makes, you know, that, that occasional shift in her character credible. Um, you know, when we see her, her vulnerable side, you know, sort of, you know, with her sister Joan and, and, you know, sort of with, you know, various other times there where, you know, she, I think in the second season she has a meltdown and she's contemplating suicide. Yeah, she kind of over-dramatises it. As a, <laughs> you know, well, that's how Sue sees it. But, um, but you, know, you know, when we learn that she has a sister with Down syndrome, it's actually done really sensitively and, and you know, it makes you, just when you think, you know, you've got, you know, Sue Sylvester, in, you know, right, right in, the, in your head, and you go, okay, I know what she's got to do, and la la la. She will do this, and it just turns her around. And what's even more interesting, just even re- you know, in this um, recent uh, season and episodes, is that even though this is her weak spot, she's actually not afraid to use this in, in her current campaign um, for, for Congress, um, because you know she's sort of, you know, rather than attacking the arts, she's now sort of saying, well, okay, let's, you know. Um, yeah, what you know? Let's channel that arts funding into special ed programs and special ed funding because we, you know, sort of people with special needs at schools aren't getting enough. And so, it's it's kind of, you know that's another twist again. I mean, you know, she's she's so you know sort of um, passionate about her, her sister and about people with Down syndrome, and that's why Becky is on the you know the cheer you know the Cheerios and all that sort of stuff. But then you know she's you know she's not afraid to use that to to you know for her own personal gain if and when she needs. Um, and you know so yeah. It's, you know, she's a really well-rounded character. Um, and so I just thought, you know, as my last clip, I, I'd, I'd play this clip because, you know, this really does show, um, uh, you know, Sue's vulnerable side. And it's actually quite a moving, moving scene as well. So we'll run with that clip. Thanks. <clears throat> this was Jean's favourite song. Hold your breath, make a wish, count to three.
Sorry, I didn't bring tissues. <laughs> so hopefully you'll supply your own. <laughs> but I mean, and, and, and that scene, again, is, is one of the things that I love about Glee because it, it moves from, you know, th- you know, effortlessly through parody and slapstick and drama and social commentary into, into something more serious and, and moving territory like that. And, you know, and, and for all of those reasons, it reminds me of my own adolescence as well because, you know, as an adolescent going through puberty, you, you're, you're a mess of all those kind of emotions and stuff like that. So that's why, you know, that's why I love Glee. Um, and now I think we're going to sort of get stuck straight into um, to Clem down there who's going to sort of take a, a Broadway slant. Yeah, I'm actually glad you finished with that because uh, that um, pure imagination gives me a quick moment to say that I think... Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus are one of the most underrated musical theatre songwriting teams of all time. I knew that would go down like a cup of cold sick. Someone had the guts to say it. Well, you know, I've been waiting 29 years and I finally got it out. Um, I am going to take an irritating musical theatre traditionalist view tonight because um, I've worked, as my little intro said, as a music critic for the last 10 years, but I actually grew up listening almost exclusively to musical theatre. Um, so again, you know, the idea of a show like Glee for me was something extremely exciting because it felt like it was kind of mainstreamizing musicals in a decade where we'd kind of had a couple of goes. Um, there was Chicago. I think Hairspray was fantastic, the film version of that, and also the stage show. Um, but it just never kind of took off. So for me to hear that there was this show which was effectively musical comedy um, was very exciting. And I've kind of called on it since then. Um, I wanted to start with something that I wrote because I'm, I'm really, really bad at remembering my notes and I didn't want to fuck up any of my jokes, um, <laughs> which I'm sure will be as hilarious as, as, as my uh, admission about Brickus and Newley was spectacular. Um, but I'm sure it's hugely surprising for many of you to find out that I was an irritatingly precocious child. But I was, and when I was 11, I helped my primary school put on a talent quest. 
This was, amongst other things, like it being a fundraiser for a cause I now forget, a thinly veiled excuse for me to show off what I thought were my formidable musical theatre talents. <laughs> you see, unlike most of my peers, who at the time were in thrall solely to Beverly Hills 90210, LA gear runners and other cool things I don't remember, I spent most of my childhood and early adolescence listening to musicals. I distinctly remember the day I tried to win friends and influence people in the quadrangle by enthusing about how Stephen Sondheim's latest show, Assassins, had swear words in it. <laughs> it didn't work. Uh, anyway, the talent quest started to gather momentum and seeing as how I'd masterminded the whole thing, I assumed it was open season when it came to choosing a song to perform myself. And um, I settled on Being Alive from Company by Stephen Sondheim. And a uh, little uh, Glee Easter egg, actually, I noticed in the Open Your Heart um, mashup, they dance past a, a row of sheet music in the library and company is front and centre. Oh, Didn't actually know, know that. that. <laughs> um, and Neil Patrick Harris actually played Bobby in the most recent Broadway production of Company. So Funnily good. enough, this is his big song. And I couldn't actually get, we couldn't get a clip of it in time. So I was going to either read it to you or sing you a bit of it. Um, I didn't get to sing it when I was 11, so... Wait, why? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> uh, the words go... Do you want me to sing it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Could you stand up too and just sort of really... Yeah, I don't want to be the only idiot. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. I hate you. I'll put it to you, you don't. <laughs> right. Okay, the words go, somebody hold me too close, somebody hurt me, I'm giving it some glee, <laughs> hurt me too deep, somebody sit in my chair and ruin my sleep and make me aware of being alive. Just trying to imagine an 11-year-old singing that. <laughs> uh, it goes on. And... And needless to say, the idea of 11-year-old me belting out somebody hold me too close at the Gasworks Theatre <laughs> was a little bit too much for them to stomach. Uh, perhaps it was payback time for the time I trolled the sex ed teacher and asked if, were you to fertilise a human female with a fish egg, would you get a mermaid? <laughs> Either way, being alive was nixed and I was instructed to choose something a little more age-appropriate. I promise you this is going somewhere. Um, in the end, I convinced my parents to hire a massive ball gown from Rose Chong's costumes, and I performed Getting to Know You from The King and I, along with a group of grade one students dressed up as children of Siam. Now, you have to understand that for a, some would say beyond her years, I would say undiagnosed autistic... <laughs> young Sondheim fan, being, asking to perform Being Alive and instead being given Getting to Know You is a little bit like finding out your bottle of Chateau Neuf de Pape contains Bart Simpson clear cola. <laughs> Despite my dedication to doing the best Deborah Carr impression an 11-year-old can do when she doesn't have the bust to stop her ball gown from falling down from her shoulders to her waist, I didn't win the talent quest. A bunch of grade six girls dressed as nuns did that with a rousing rendition of My God from Sister Act. <laughs> and thus began my hatred of the jukebox musical, and it's a combination of both that and the age appropriateness of certain songs that forms the bulk of my issues with Glee this evening. Um, that gives you a little bit of background into why I guess I feel so passionately about the musical theatre aspects of Glee. And um, what I wanted to start with was uh, one of the songs from Glee, which I think was... I can't remember if this came before the Kurt clip that I'm going to show you, but they're both kind of on a par in terms of people 
seeing them as these watershed moments on Glee. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people consider this to be Rachel Berry's best performance. Um, I'm going to rain on that parade after we watch it, but first of all, this is, uh, this is, this is Rachel. Oh, I didn't... Hey! Like, kill me! Um, this is Rachel Berry singing My Man from Funny Girl. <laughs> My name is Rachel Berry, and I'll be singing the most difficult song I've ever sung. Great, what song? Uh, Barbara's closing number to my favorite movie, Funny Girl. Rachel, in your head, are you singing to anyone in particular? Not really. Oh. Lies! <laughs> oh, my man, I love him so. He'll never know. All my life is just despair. I don't care when he takes me in his arms. The world is bright all right. What's the difference if I say I'll go And I know I'll come back on my knees someday For whatever my man is, I am his forever opportunity to talk about a traumatic experience that I had. <laughs> I love that you're using tonight as therapy. It's yeah. really great. Let's do this. Um, when I, uh, my, my, I had a cat um, that <laughs> lived until she was 17 and uh, in the last year or so of her life she became really vindictive. She used to like eat the butter with this look on her face like, I'm not even enjoying this. <laughs> but uh, one day she actually crawled, she crawled under my bed. She crawled under my bed and vomited in my Barbara Streisand scrapbook. <laughs> Clem told us this story at dinner and I said, how old are you? She said, 20. <laughs> I was 20 at the time. But I hadn't kept the scrapbook for some years and it was uh, irretrievable. But um, <laughs> the funny thing about that is that Leah Michelle is actually probably um, 
has the most cred of any of the Glee cast in terms of uh, having a Broadway background. She's actually been performing in musicals since I think she was about six or seven. She was in Les Mis. Um, there's a great video online, which I've forgotten until right now, um, where she's on, I think, Ricky, Ricky Lake or Oprah or something. It's like kids in theatre and she's she comes out and sings her song. It's pretty cute. Um, but the thing that bothered me about that is that uh, it's not... I'm going to go on and talk about kind of revisionism in musical theatre in a minute in Glee, but to me that is basically Barbara Streisand karaoke. Um, and, you yeah, know, so that's not good? Oh, it's good, but the thing about Rachel, uh, and I guess that this kind of plays back into what you were saying, Tim, about how they sort of are very self-referential with lampooning the very things that make Glee kind of iffy for some people. Um, you know, Rachel is the biggest Barbara Streisand fan in the world. But um, if you watch Barbara Streisand singing it, then it kind of blows it out of the water. And it also kind of makes that performance a little bit... Not pointless, because obviously to the people who haven't seen Funny Girl, um, that's amazing. But once you see the original, you kind of go, was there much point to that? It's me. It's you. I thought it was very good. Let's say, yeah, we're going to have a walk through my Barbara Streisand scrapbook right now. (laughs) 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 I'm not even enjoying this. If I say I'll go away When I know I'll come back On my knees someday For whatever my man is I am his
how you win an Oscar. <laughs> I think I preferred Rachel's. No, you didn't. <laughs> Look, it doesn't matter who you prefer, but I, I, I think that is a kind of a good indication of... Um, they treat musical comedy in one of two ways, which is either that way in which it's this very reverential, almost kind of facsimile of it, or then what I'm going to talk about now, which is um, uh, we saw Kurt earlier tonight doing the uh, Defying Gravity duet. I don't particularly care for um, Wicked as a musical because to me it's from that new era of kind of really screechy which I find really unbearable. So I actually, I actually, that was the first time I'd seen that duet because I try to avoid particularly that song, um, like the plague. But um, I guess Kurt's big number in Glee uh, was when he did Rose's Turn from um, Gypsy. And I think actually before I go on, we'll just watch that now and then I'll continue. All that work and what did it get me? Why did I do it? Scrapbooks full of me in the background. Give them love and what does it get you? What does it get you? One quick look as each of them leaves you. All your life and what does it get you? Thanks a lot and out with the garbage They take brows and you're batting zero I had a dream I dreamed it for you, Dad It wasn't for me, Dad And if it wasn't for me True pain. Um, go on YouTube and look up Rose's turn. Uh, because after that, uh, it became a Glee song. So of course, every teenager and amateur <laughs> music Broadway performer in, in uh, Christendom got on YouTube and sang a version of that. <laughs> the thing about Rose's turn is it's what's known in the game as a musical nervous breakdown, which is kind of a big, very emotional showstopper. And um, the the if you want a little bit of background, how many of you have seen Gypsy? Good. Um, well, Rose, Rose is the mother of Gypsy Rose Lee, um, and so basically she's put all her effort into making Gypsy this burlesque superstar, and then she feels left behind, and she always wanted to be the star, and it didn't happen. So that's kind of the background of that. And the thing is, in musical theatre, and particularly with Stephen Sondheim, um, there are certain roles that you kind of have to earn, um, and that may seem really kind of 
essentialist view of musical theatre, but damn it, that's what I'm about. Um, <laughs> the thing is there, and that's why I couldn't sing uh, Being Alive when I was 11, because that's a song sung by a 35-year-old man who uh, all his friends are getting married and he's trying to wrestle with whether or not um, you know, he's going to be with anybody and he ends up saying that you know, being alone is alone, not alive. Um, and so for me, there are songs like that, which are these kind of goalposts that you get to after having not so much paid your dues, but they're the kind of thing that keeps you going in musical theatre. So you get to sing songs like Rose's Turn or you get to sing uh, I'm Still Here. I mean, you know, if Kurt sang I'm Still Here, which is a song from Follies um, for a woman who's, you know, maybe 50, 60 at minimum, um, I just think that's... It's not wrong, but if maybe if we play Ethel right. Merman... It's just not right. If we play Ethel Merman's version, which unfortunately we don't have video of, but we do have um, the mime. recording. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but this gives you... This is, I guess, the definitive version of that role, which I think she originated on Broadway. Um, we'll just quickly play a bit of it. Stephen Sondheim's quite a fan of, uh, and I just think it's a bit. I think it's a bit naff in terms of um, a show that I guess kind of found its genesis in musical theatre to then take songs like that and kind of play with them in a revisionist way. I mean, I'm just I'm 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 really not into revisionism when it comes to theatre. Um, when I got the MTC press release for their um, their season next year and it had Queen Lear in it. I was absolutely seething at my desk. <laughs> I couldn't say anything because it was embargoed. And the thing is, I'm like, take you, out more. <laughs> you know, it, now I'm really going tangential. But in a show, in a um, in a play like King Lear, you already have three of Shakespeare's greatest female characters. Why do you need to make King Lear into a queen? Are you then going to make Edmund and everybody else into women? Anyway. Um, <laughs> But what I wanted to finish up on is, I guess, like Jess, a kind of slightly more positive note, which is that I think they've stopped kind of playing around uh, with that stuff and they are kind of taking um, musical comedy or musical theatre a little bit more seriously. Um, we saw America before from the West Side Story 
uh, episode. And I just wanted to finish with Blaine singing Something's Coming from West Side Story, which is my favourite song from that show. And while it is um, auto-tuned to shit, I think that this... <laughs> That's what they call it in the industry, I believe, as well. <laughs> hey, you know, uh, I, I, I don't even know what I was going with that. Just conscious of how the, the lols stopped coming once I started being a really dry uh, theatre traditionalist. I've laughed a lot. Anyway. I feel like that. <laughs> so I wanted to finish on a bit of an upbeat note because I think that um, the thing about Glee is that they do, they don't have a responsibility to educate the public um, in the, the, the joys of musical theatre. And um, Stephen Sondheim himself actually said that Glee is a mix of contemporary songs and show tunes in the service of joy. Which hurts me a little bit because he's my hero and... I know, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's also very old now. Um, <laughs> maybe. Okay. Um, so I thought I'd finish uh, on a positive note with uh, this song from the West Side Story um, episode because, you know, the, the, the upside is, is that they're showing kids these shows which they either wouldn't have the opportunity to go and see or they wouldn't have thought to investigate um, you know, I, I guess since Glee, the idea of being in the school musical is probably something a bit more hip than it was when we were at school. But, you know, to get a, to get a lead role in the musical um, when I was in high school was, was not something to crow about uh, <laughs> and anywhere except on the stage. Um, and I'd also just like to uh, express my disappointment with Mrs Clayton for not allowing me to have a wedding dress in my wedding scene in Guys and Dolls. Um, <laughs> And that thus endeth my therapy session for tonight. <laughs> and uh, here's Blaine singing Something's Coming. <laughs> Hi, guys. Greetings. Uh, what song will you be singing today? Uh, something's Coming. Could be. There's something due any day I will know right away Soon as it shows And make him cannonballing down through the sky Gleaming its eye bright as a rose Who knows It's only just out of reach Down the block on a beach Under a tree I got a feeling there's a miracle due Gonna come true coming to me Yes, it could. Something's coming, something good. If I can wait, something's coming. I don't know what it is, but it is gonna be great. With a click, with a shock, phone will jingle, door will knock, open the latch. Something's coming, don't know when, but it soon catch the moon. One handed catch.
It's only just out of reach Down the block on a beach Maybe tonight Maybe tonight Maybe tonight ovation right now. <laughs> it's funny because he can't. <laughs> it's not funny at all. Uh, you know, one of the um, one of the things I remember seeing years ago a um, a documentary about Leonard Bernstein and writing West Side Story and mm. that song and how difficult it actually is for singers to to learn because there's it changes. Um, Signature, key yeah. signature, you know, and time signature so many times, and and there are so many accents on off, you know, counter beats and stuff like that. That you know, sort of even the most seasoned opera singers have, you know, they really have to work at it. So yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it probably was auto tuned to shit. Well, it's very, it was very auto tuned to shit. I mean, it, it, but it's still a pretty fantastic performance of it. I mean, I was a little disappointed. What's beautiful about that song um, when you see it done well in the context of the show is that it's. It ends on quite a soft note. He yeah. really kind of gave it, it out, glee, yeah. but, uh, you know, whatever. We've established that I'm the Statler and Waldorf of this evening, so yeah, I'll let it slide. I think you and Jess are the Statler and Waldorf. <laughs> I love glee. No, I don't. <laughs> oh, I hated it. <laughs> oh. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.